to The Indie, the podcast from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent. I'm your host, Alexandra Goldberg, and on today's episode, we're diving into the potential environmental consequences if the Santa Barbara pipeline reopens on our coast. But first, I sat down with the Starfish Connection, a local nonprofit that popped up in Santa Barbara only 10 months ago. Its mission is to provide emergency gap grants to families in need by partnering with other nonprofits that share their values. The Starfish Connection works with Hospice of Santa Barbara, the Teddy Bear Pediatric Foundation, and Bethel House, with more partnerships underway, to assist clients with a financial need, whether that is rent assistance, money for medical care, or in this story, warmth, comfort, and basic necessities. We'll call him R. He and his wife were living in their mobile home. It was the middle of winter. It was when we were having 40-degree nights. And he had been very ill for a very long time, finally went into the doctor. He was diagnosed with end-stage cancer. And their RV had run out of heating fuel and transportation fuel. And they were living roadside in Carpinteria. So they called us. Uh, ahead of the application coming in and said, hey, I think it was a Friday afternoon. This is happening for this couple. They're in desperate need of heating and he needs treatment. We're going to send the application. Is there any way you can process? And so she sent the application through the caseworker. We reviewed it internally. We turned that grant around in about two and a half hours. And they knew where they needed to park to be close enough to the hospital for treatment um, and be connected to services. Um, And so we got them housed at the Earl Warren Showgrounds RV Park. They hadn't had money for food, so we picked them up enough hot food from the chicken ranch for about a week. They got fuel for heating, they got fuel for their vehicle, they got a hot meal, and they got a place to sleep. And our passed about six, seven days after that happened. So even though we didn't get to have him around for much longer, we had the opportunity to have conversations with them and to make sure that this sweet man and his wife at the end of his life, they had care, they had food, they had warmth, they were close to treatment. We got to support our hospice partners in helping these people immediately get services that there was no other way to give them. The values of the Starfish Connection align with a poem about a young boy on the beach throwing a starfish into the water one at a time. When asked what kind of difference it will make, the little boy responded that he was making a difference for that starfish. His impact was one starfish at a time. I was joined today by the founder, Virginia Benson Weigel, and executive director, Sarah Abrams, to talk about the impact of helping the Santa Barbara community one person at a time. I'm Virginia Benson Weigel, and I'm the founder of the Starfish Connection. I'm Sarah Abrams, and I'm the executive director for the Starfish Connection. Great. Thank you so much again for coming on the show today. And I wanted to start off with a broad question. What is the Starfish Connection and how does it impact the Santa Barbara community? The Starfish Connection is a local nonprofit that Virginia founded to bring to fruition the legacy of her late husband, John, who had this idea that by helping an individual, 
you can have a massive impact on a community. And so that's the basis of our entire vision is to help one person at a time and to allow those ripple effects to naturally affect the community. We partner with other local nonprofits who are serving community members that we most want to reach. We are working at the base level of helping families stay housed, maintain their own transportation. Sometimes that's food, sometimes it's fuel. So the impact that we're seeing through our partnerships and being able to help individuals is keeping a family housed. Most families are two paychecks away from homelessness, so missing rent for one month because one of our partners is Teddy Bear Cancer Foundation. The parents aren't able to work because they're home taking care of the child. Rents get behind, so if we can cover rent for that family for one month, they can stay housed. So that's a huge, huge gift to give a family who's undergoing the most tumultuous, stressful time in their lives. We all have received gifts in our lifetime that change the course of our life. I mean, it might be something as simple as, you know, when I was singing in a band, someone bought me new clothes, a friend of mine, a a female friend of mine, just because she supported my music. And it changed like my whole feeling of being on stage because I felt like, wow, someone really believes in me. And so that kind of small gift really influenced why I wanted and John wanted to be able to give gifts to people that would change their life or at least make them feel less pain or discomfort um, and give them hope. Absolutely. And you mentioned that rent assistance was one sort of area um, that gap grants go towards. What are some other situations or scenarios that you would help with? So one of the stories that has impacted me the most, and it's the one that I tell most frequently right now, um, we have a family through Teddy Bear Cancer Foundation that they have a young child who's undergoing treatment, and the family didn't have enough, uh, they didn't have a couch in their living room, and the boy is unable to sit up because of his pain and his treatments, and they needed a couch. And a, (laughs) a couch is just not something that, most nonprofits have the ability to pay for. And that's what makes us really unique is that instead of we do, we have this mission and this is what we do, we can really spread that out over a multitude of needs. So we were able to buy a couch for this family's living room. We delivered it directly to their home. The boy now can lay down in the presence of the rest of his family and be in his community without them having to spend time in his bedroom where he has to be laying down all the time. That made a massive impact on me personally, just to know that this kid gets to be, as he's undergoing Mm -hmm. treatment, he gets to be in the heart of his family space. And that's not something that most nonprofits have a budget for. Again, in our vision, original vision, it's the the little things that really, you know, count. Um, I mean, everything counts. I was a nonprofit for 20 years. And what I was able to identify is, you know, you have things like domestic violence or rape crisis or Planned Parenthood. And that is specifically, or Teddy Bear, Mm -hmm. is specifically for needs that are met through, you know, state funding, national funding, private funding. It's like these little things that are huge things to someone. If someone breaks down on the freeway and they've got four kids and they can't make it to work, they're going to lose their job. What's going to happen? They might lose their housing. So it's like this ripple effect. So if we can catch it, right then and there and make that difference that's where 
I think the whole vision started for us. I see. Thank you both for sharing that. In Virginia, I want to hear more about your story and how it propelled the origin of the Starfish Connection. I was thinking about this on the drive up, and every time I get to speak about my late husband, I just want to preempt this with saying I do, you know, grief is always such a present thing in my life. Not that I, you know, um, I'm contained by grief. There's a John Mayer song that says, fear is a friend that is misunderstood. And I feel that grief is a friend that is misunderstood because grief to me is not to be feared. It brings me back to the present and it connects me to John in many, many ways. And um, so if I get emotional, it's, it's okay. It's because I'm so happy to talk about him. So John and I met in 2006 and um, I thought he was, he was 20 years older than I am. And I thought he was just a nice old guy. And I realized that he's now my age that I am currently. And I don't think I'm that old, but I thought he was. And we started a really strong friendship and I had no idea. We just didn't even know, we, it didn't even matter what each other did. It was that we got to know each other intimately in this way where we would talk about you know, our lives and what affected our lives and how we got to this place in our lives. It was so deep for me. And um, as we, we call it flipped, as we fell in love, John was able to give me gifts and I was able to give him gifts, more emotional, but he did help me and it changed my life. I was able to get out of the situation that I was living in because he gave me this one gift that he had no want or need for for me to return. And it it really did change the projection of my life. So that kind of was one of those little like notes along the way that led me to where I am right now. Starfish started originally out as something called Our Story. And Our Story is meant as a place to have people come tell their story, not formally, not a history. That's not what we're looking for. It's more like what, um, as an example, I was sexually assaulted um, and stalked. I know that millions and millions of men and women have been sexually assaulted and stalked. Now the circumstances are different, but the feelings are ultimately the same. And to have that network um, online to be able to go, God, you know what? I'm not crazy. This is something that happens to anyone. And to be able to read a story, whether it's a snippet of what happened or whatever, that bonds people together and forms that community. So we have created something that we can talk about later on called Our Story. But what it morphed into is when Sarah and I, who have known each other for 20 years, um, when I had no idea how to do this. And after John died, I was like, you know, I have to do this because I promised him I'd do it. His last word to me was Our Story. And I was like, God dang it. I have to do this now, but it's such a big thing. I didn't know how it was going to turn out. So the ride has been like so much, so many turns and twists and like starting a business I never, ever thought I would do in my life. And it morphed into this nonprofit based on this story. It was John's favorite poem. And just so we can catch listeners up on the starfish story, could you talk about the the poem and and the meaning of it? 
So the poem gained popularity. Um, it's actually excerpted from a much longer book called The Star Thrower. So there are multiple, multiple versions of the story as people have interpreted and reinterpreted it. The essence of the story is there's a mass beaching of just tens of thousands of starfish on the shoreline. And there's a little boy who's walking down the beach um, in one direction and a man walking down the beach toward him in the opposite direction. And the man notices that this child is bending over and picking up a starfish one at a time, throwing it back into the sea. And as the man and the boy come closer, the man says, why are you bothering? It's futile. There are too many of them. You cannot possibly save them all. And the boy bends, picks up a starfish, returns it to the sea. And he says, no, but I made a difference for that one. I and love so, that so much more when you tell it. <laughs> Such a nice it story. I love it. Impactful story. story time. And mm-hmm. it is absolutely what we're about. It is. It is a hundred percent what we're about. And when we conceived of the nonprofit, which we knew we needed to do to honor John, and how do we honor John? How do we incorporate because that was really his ethos. It he was. truly believed that. So how do we bring that to life for in real time? And for many nonprofits, like this is our mission, this is what we do. To Virginia's point, they do one thing. Mm-hmm. Well, John didn't want to do one thing. John wanted to help everybody. So how do we do that? And we do that by identifying other nonprofits in town who serve the clientele that we align with, who can't meet every need because it's not in their charter and it's not in their budget. So we kind of slide in, thread the needle between what they're doing and what the the other what clients need and then that's how we throw a starfish back it's one at a time that was great i love that it all aligns Mm -hmm. truly i wanted to get into the logistics of the starfish connection who can qualify for a gap grant and what's that process of qualifying So the process starts with a nonprofit that we're partnered with. We don't directly outreach to clients. So the way it works is um, their social worker who's already working and has developed a relationship with families or with individuals in need, they see everything that's going on in that client's life. And so they can identify, oh, this family needs a sofa for the son, or this father is about to lose his child to liver failure and he's a self-employed landscaper Mm -hmm. he's behind two car payments they're going to repossess his means of making an income and then that social worker will fill out our application on their behalf and submit it directly to us it goes through an internal review and approval process um, between Mm -hmm. our staff and our board members and then once if that grant is approved then we have about an average 24-hour turnaround time right now to pay the rent, to make the car payment, to buy the couch. Um, And the other element that we do with our nonprofit partners is we offer them the option of gift cards, especially through the pandemic. People had a really hard time paying for fuel and groceries and the expense of everything is just exponential. So they can use a part of their allotment for food cards, fuel cards. Um, So we've also provided Mm -hmm. them with just, you know, here's $500 in fuel cards and 500 in food cards to distribute to their families at their discretion. That's quick. 24-hour turnaround. That's the mission. Yeah. To make it fast, to make it immediately applicable so that the impact uh, for that family that, like, 
relief. That sigh of relief when you're you know your rent's paid or grandma's not getting evicted because she's staying with the the daughter who is sick while everybody else works like that's a major deal for a family who's already in crisis so stringing it out yeah mm-hmm. that doesn't make any sense to us no it needs to be or people fast. who have travel they can't afford travel for a funeral or they can't afford all the crema- cremation is really expensive so those are other things that you know why would you want to make anyone wait and suffer that's not our mission. We want that relief, that instant relief. That makes sense. Thank you. And before we wrap up the conversation, is there anything else you would like to add that you think listeners should know? So since we're in our infancy, we're just beginning to create and launch our fundraising efforts. And one of the first programs that we're putting out into the community, um, and again, like Virginia said, money where where your mouth is, I'm starting with myself and friends and family and my inner circle Um, is a call to action to donate $10 a month for 12 months, which is less than a cocktail in a bar at happy hour, and it's a latte and a tip. And pretty much all of us can give $10 a month for the duration of 12 months. So that's our initial fundraising campaign, which isn't launched publicly yet. 70% of the donations that come into a nonprofit do not come from high-end donors. They come from middle-class women who are donating in amounts of $25 to $75. And we're very consistent donors, middle-class women, young women. We're not making scads of money, but we are by far the largest segment of donors supporting nonprofit. That's where my heart is. And so fundraising campaigns that we create and launch We're going to span the spectrum of donors, absolutely. So to me, it is critically important to create a safe, appreciative, grateful space for everyone to donate. Very true. And when can listeners expect these campaigns to launch? By July, if not earlier. But our website is thestarfishconnection.org. And we have a nice big red donation button in the upper right-hand corner. Um, so that camp- all campaigns, and we are gratefully accepting donations of any size now, but the reoccurring donation for $10 a month for the duration of 12 months, that one's active in my head. So let's go. And that website will be linked in the show notes. Thank you. A couple of the other things that I get to do because I get to play and they're fun is that we're also launching our podcast, um, The Starfish Connection. Um And what that centers around is interviewing people that have received gifts and how it changed their life. And it might, it, it is something that we will reach out to recipients of our grants, but also just people in general that want to talk about that gift, because I don't think that I can even conceive of how many different ways people can give gifts. Like I mentioned in the beginning, and I will seek this person out to thank them who bought me clothes. Like I, it, it made me feel so like supported and empowered. And I, every single time I, I see someone who's helped me along the way, I like deeply want to thank them and show my gratitude because again, it's led me to the person I am today. And it's taught me that that one interaction just changes the course of your life. And, and to what you said, it made me want to pay it forward because you know, Once you know, you can't, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Um, The other thing that we have is something called the Talk O Truck, T-A-L-K-O Truck. 
And um, I had this vision that I always get visions from John, I believe. And um, the taco truck was something that was inspired by a concert that I went to see. And then I said, oh, my God, I want to do this. I want the taco truck. And we can do um, podcasts through the taco truck. So it, it kind of frees us up from being in one place. And it actually is just like the coolest, cutest little thing I could ever envision. Um, so that'll be unfolding in a couple of months as well. So that's a physical. It's a physical truck. truck. It's about as cute as can be. How fun. I know it's pink. We'll take it to community events. And we people will. will have the opportunity also to come in and tell their story, yeah. which will ultimately be hosted on the OurStoryConnection.com website um, so that as a community of human beings all sharing similar experiences, mm-hmm. we can come together and tell those stories in Jin's taco truck. Yep. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. This has been wonderful. I love to hear the stories about the origin of the Starfish Connection, how it's personally impacted the both of you, and how it's impacting the broader community. So thank you again for coming on. Thank Thank you. you. One starfish at a time. I just love that story and the values of the nonprofit. To help out the mission of the Starfish Connection, they are taking donations on their website, which will be linked in the show notes. Up next on the IndiePod, we're taking a look at what is at stake if the Santa Barbara pipeline were to reopen on our coast. The Indie reporter, Rebecca Fairweather, has the story. Hello, I'm Rebecca Fairweather, and you're listening to The Indie, your source for local news in Santa Barbara. Today, I'm covering plans for the future of oil pipelines in Santa Barbara and how the community is responding and the history of oil spills off our coast. Let's start off with a general survey of the history of coastal pipelines in Santa Barbara. In 1969, California experienced its largest oil spill, resulting in 3 million gallons of oil flooding the Santa Barbara coastline, ranging 35 miles from Goleta to Ventura, even reaching the coast of the Channel Islands. The Santa Barbara oil spill is the third largest spill in U.S. history, coming after the 2010 Deepwater Horizon spill and the 1989 Exxon Valdez spill. The cause of this environmental catastrophe was due to a shortcut taken by Union Oil, shortening the protective steel depth of a wall designed to prevent a spill from occurring. This catastrophe fueled the drive for better environmental protection and directly inspired the annual holiday we know as Earth Day. But this did not mean the end for environmental disasters for the Santa Barbara coastline. In May 2015, over 140,000 gallons of crude oil spilled into the Govita Coast, a region known for its rich biodiversity. Pipeline 901 is the faulty pipeline in this case, and the current case we're looking at. According to the Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Administration, the company failed to turn on the alarm that would signal a leak while dealing with another issue regarding pump failure. This delayed indication of the failure in the system, in addition to the automatic valve failure that would stop the flow of oil, resulted in what we now know as the Refugio oil spill. This disaster caused severe environmental damages and raked up an estimated $257 million in restorations, cleanup, and settlements. This year, Plains Pipeline, which is now owned by ExxonMobil, is pushing to reopen the same pipeline for use. 
they promised a new development plan that seeks to install 16 new safety valves along the existing pipeline that runs from the Govita Coast through Los Padres National Forest within Santa Barbara County and ending in Kern County. On March 6, the Santa Barbara Planning Commission held a meeting completely dedicated to the pipeline reopening after three property owners who reside along the line sued the Zoning Administration for approving the project without inspection. The property owners were worried that their homes could become the site of an ecological disaster. According to Plains, the pipeline is holding pressure and not showing signs of corrosion. The group claims that five of the 16 valves will be used to prevent a spill from occurring through an automatic shutoff system, cutting off the flow of oil. But environmental organizations say otherwise. Today, we'll be discussing the potential consequences of Pipeline 901's reemergence with Kat Lane, president of UCSB's Environmental Affairs Committee and the group's program advisor, Sarah Siechlog. Um, so hi, my name is Kat, um, pronoun she, they, and I am one of the executive chairs for UCSB's Associated Students um, Environmental Affairs Board. My name is Sarah Siechlog, and I am the Environmental Programs Advisor for UCSB Associated Students. That's great. Could you explain a little bit more about the development plans for the pipeline and why its resurgence poses a threat to the Santa Barbara coastline? One of the first things that you'll find on this line is that in 2015, um, we had the Refugio oil spill. Um, so that spill occurred, and that was this pipeline. So essentially what happened was that the company in charge of it, um, Planes, All-American, their systems that were supposed to go off um, to like trigger like shutdown of the line um, and certain alarms, like they were not attended to. So oil, you know, like completely spilled and it ended up, you know, damaging the Santa Barbara coast. The pipeline bursts in 2015 and it becomes purged and idled. So it doesn't have oil in it anymore and it hasn't been used since 2015. So essentially what happens is now Planes, who's transferring holding of the pipeline to Exxon, who's transferring it to a smaller company, Sable. They are trying to just add valves to this pipeline. And essentially what they're trying to do is they're trying to bring it in front of um, Santa Barbara County Planning Commission. And they're trying to propose, hey, we just want to add valves to this pipeline. Essentially underneath CEQA, you have to follow um, certain procedures if you're doing um, a project and scopes of projects matter. Greatly, especially in like, you know, the informed decision making process of the public, the planning commission, planning commission staff, it would ultimately mean the restart of this line. And that's like trying to basically circumvent um, CEQA because it's not basically like taking a hard look at the long or at the holistic environmental impacts that would be caused from this valve upgrade. It's trying to piecemeal it in essence. I love that you mentioned the 2015 refugio oil spill because the lack of valves had a major impact on why this oil spill was an ecological disaster. So thank you for mentioning that. And especially the pipes corroded state, I think that is often underlooked, I'd say. How would you say the effectiveness of these safety valves would be, even though the pipe is allegedly very corroded? And do these safety valves mm -hmm. do anything? Pipelines, they're made to break. Um, and that's all pipelines are bad pipelines. I mean, Oil is not our future. And just by adding these valves, like whether or not it makes it safer, I think would be a question to ask if we were deciding, you know, if we wanted to have a future with oil. 
And I can assure you that in the 1985 EIR that originally came out for this project, um, that's what you have to like submit underneath CEQA is an environmental impact report that sort of details what the environmental impacts are going to be um, from the project. And in that, they said this pipeline is going to be perfectly safe. They said, we're taking all of these extra measures to make sure that, you know, there's no corrosion and that we're going to do all of these things and it will be totally safe. And then there's an oil spill. And it just is time and time and time again. And there's just, there's not going to be like, there's no way to have healthy communities and resources that like, you know, allow people to have abundance and to thrive with oil at the front. Yeah. I love the fact that you mentioned specifically the range that oil has on the United States and the earth in in general. Um, And you stated that valves are not our future. It's not in Earth's future. It's not in Santa Barbara's future. So that kind of ties into the next question. Could you tell us a little bit about any alternative solutions or proposals that would be more environmentally friendly than reopening Pipeline 901? We just, we have the technology to move forward with cleaner solutions. I mean, they are right there. We just need to kind of get out of this like big oil um, grasp and you know, make a future that's going to have like a just transition in it that is going to move from, you know, these like horrible oil practices without like displacing anyone who's like an oil worker, but still like, we just don't need to use these like horrible fossil fuels anymore. I mean, there are so many innovative technologies, whether it be offshore wind, onshore wind, um, you know, larger like solar projects that have tons of different capacities and that look a lot of different ways. Um, it's not that these projects like in and of themselves, like it's completely understandable that like these also have, you know, different impacts and like we will need to have like critical thinking conversations about those. I wanted to add in, um, you know, when we're talking about alternatives and the the future. What I think is really important that we haven't touched on is that when the Refugio oil spill happened, so this pipeline was the one connector for seven offshore platforms to connect to the shoreline and to processing facilities. And so all seven of those platforms have been dormant. Um, Four of them pretty much immediately decided like, you know what, it's going to take years for a pipeline to be rebuilt. Like this pipeline is is not coming back anytime soon. And they opted to move towards decommissioning. So that was already like four of the seven platforms are done. There's the three remaining ones were owned by Exxon, which was had obviously the backing could like support to kind of keep itself going, prop itself up. When planes was running into trouble and uh, had lots and lots of liability and went um and kind of failed as a company, Exxon took over that pipeline because Exxon is just trying to keep these three platforms going. And now they're spinning it off into this subsidiary company so they can consolidate the liability so Exxon won't be liable. It'll all be under this kind of subsidiary company. Even if like the pipeline is rebuilt, like it's already like the region as a whole, we're already have less than half the platforms that were serviced by this pipeline. Like it's already moving away from oil. Like there's no need to like rebuild an entire pipeline, restart an entire pipeline for decades for these three Exxon platforms. It's just not like it's not needed. Yeah. Thank you for that, Sarah. I think you bring up a great point of moving away from oil and the resources are limitless nowadays. 
that we don't need to turn to oil as our main source. But that kind of brings up the point of why are they pushing for this? Why are they pressuring this? Why do they want this to be approved and in process so quickly? So if the pipeline were to be reopened despite opposition, what monitoring and safety measures would you recommend to minimize potential risks? We can have a great monitoring plan, but historically they haven't been followed. You know, with the refugio spill, they there was a monitoring plan. There were shutoff valves that didn't shut the pipeline off when it leaked. And that is not uncommon. Obviously, both of you are very passionate about this topic and very passionate about keeping our environment safe. So that kind of leads me into my next question, specifically about the Environmental Affairs Committee. How has the Environmental Affairs Committee been involved in raising awareness and advocating against the pipeline reopening? We um, brought students down with us um, to give public comment um, with the planning commissioners and like kind of like taught them how to do that. So that was like a cool way of getting um, some of our students involved who had kind of never done something like that before, um, making voices heard and getting students to um, have those voices be heard live at the hearings and also in written comments beforehand has been a really salient part of how we've been getting students involved. Yeah, thank you. Kind of wrapping up for our final question, obviously the Santa Barbara community is extremely concerned that this could be another form of a shortcut, um, you know, within the pipeline as well as the Environmental Affairs Board. So in the kind of larger context of the fight against climate change and environmental degradation, how significant is the issue of Pipeline 901 to Santa Barbara and the global community? And is there anything else that you would like to add? To get the exact specifics of the, you know, net increase of greenhouse gases, how that's going to affect Santa Barbara's, you know, air quality plan, what those exact specifics are going to look like. Um, a great place to look for that would be on the Santa Barbara County um, website underneath where the pipeline kind of is featured. And then also on the streamed actual hearing um, from March 6th for this. So those would be great places to find um, exact references on impacts. It is our responsibility, since we are the ones here to fight these local battles, to say, no, we don't want pipelines here um, and we don't want like this fossil fuel infrastructure here. We want to move forward to an equitable future. And that starts by, you know, having this accountability and saying that these impacts, you know, are ultimately going to be, if it's one spill, they still are going to have devastating local impacts. And in terms of global impacts, I mean, there's quite a bit of unfairness for us to not stand up. I mean, there are so many communities that are already climate change is very much here and they are very much feeling that. And there's not a whole lot of, you know, advocacy aside from, you know, their own like self-advocacy. There's not a lot of allyship or there's not as much as there should be um, in terms of saying like, no, we need to fight these local battles and kind of create this, these networks of local connection. Sure. But then to also say, okay, maybe like you're the expert in your community and how do we stand up and like help each other, you know, kind of like in a working um, network so that we're all fighting these local battles. It's still a pipeline that like threatens this incredible place and that in itself is worth fighting for. And it also just threatens the health of our global community. People are afraid that this is a shortcut. Um, it is a shortcut. Um, and we know that because the Sable 
spinoff LLC that is supposed to take ownership of this pipeline says that they plan to restart operation in the first quarter of 2024. Like that is too soon to do proper repair or reconstruction of a pipeline. So we know that they are trying to take a shortcut and reopen this broken line as is. Thank you so much to the both of you for coming on the podcast and really discussing the effects that a pipeline could have for the Santa Barbara community and the world and climate change. Um, And briefly, before we wrap up today's conversation, is there anything else that you'd like to add that you believe is important for listeners to know? A huge thank you to everyone out there. And, um, you know, you can always like get involved with your local government stuff, go and see what's happening, go to the boring meetings, because more often than not, you will find um, adequacy there and you will find some of the best people um, who will just teach you a lot about respecting a place, respecting other people and, you know, respecting the work that you do and just like growing and being a part of that. So I would just, yeah, encourage listeners, go get involved, go save the world. Yeah, I think this is um, Santa Barbara is a beautiful, beautiful place. And it also is where one of the most historically significant oil spills happened. um, And that is built into this region's soul. And um, this is a great place for environmental activism. And it's partially because of that. Yeah, that's a great note. Thank you guys so much again. The Plain Pipeline Development Plan Project has encountered delays due to concerns raised by the Santa Barbara community, worried that this project could become a shortcut, similar to 1969, resulting in an ecological disaster. The Santa Barbara County Planning Commission has scheduled a hearing for April 26th to review any new findings. I'm Rebecca Fairweather, and thank you for joining us on The Indy. Again, there is another hearing scheduled for April 26th to review any findings for the Santa Barbara Pipeline Project. Thank you so much for tuning in to The Indie today. And to stay up to date with the team, check us out on Instagram at The Indie Pod. We'll see you next week, Santa Barbara. Reporting from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent, you're listening to The Indie. I'm your host, Alexandra Goldberg.